the really exciting news that I have to share with everybody is that in honor of this, our 25th episode of As We Eat, yay! yay! We are giving away a copy of Laura Bashar's The Camp and Cabin Cookbook. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm fantastic. Having a lovely summer. How are you? I am fabulous as well. You uh, are actually looking like you're in a different place today. I am. I am in the wilds of Minnesota, just north of Minneapolis, St. Paul. I say the wilds, but it's not so wild up here, but it's beautiful. And this is indeed the land of lakes. Everywhere you go, you see people walking by a lake or boating on a lake or just plain old beautiful lake. Really enjoying it up here. I can see why my sister and brother-in-law have decided to make a home here. Oh, nice. Well, speaking of lakes, we are sitting above a lake in Washington. We're actually on the move. We're in the van. We're living in the van. Yeah. So this is actually our first recording in the van, which is pretty exciting. Congratulations. Um, Yes, thank you. The lake that we're on, the boats can only have battery-powered motors. So it's just lovely because it's quiet and it's peaceful and people are on their paddle boards, they're in their canoes, they're in their quiet boats. So it's just really a beautiful place to be right now. Mm, I think both of us are in really special places for summertime. It, It reminds me of those beautiful summer days that feel like they last forever. And one of the best things about summertime is going camping and having campfires. So what do you think of when you hear the word campfire? I want to go back to our last episode because you said something that really got me thinking about fire specifically. And in our last episode, the beer episode, you wondered how successful we would be as a culture if the food that we cooked over the campfire didn't taste as good as it did. And I thought maybe it would be fun to explore that just a little bit and maybe not necessarily just the food, but the fact that we've harnessed fire as this component that has really changed our culture. Yeah, the whole human race. For me, the word campfire conjures these beautiful summer nights where we draw together around a fire, which is really like a symbolic temporary hearth, right? We've always seemed to congregate around this pit of flame because it provides warmth and light and security. And in my experiences with camping, you put even a group of strangers around a campfire and you have an instant community. There's something about it that draws us in within its shield of light and flame And people start to tell stories and they tell jokes and sing these half-remembered songs from other campfires and other places. It's this very elemental thing that sets a rhythm, too, for the evening when the fire is hot and bright. We're energetic and alert and we're telling stories and we're having a great time. And then 
the embers start to burn long and low and we get to feeling more languid and cozy and nurtured and protected and that you have this bond with these people that you're with. I think that just about anyone would agree to the elementalness of cooking over a fire as well. Everything within our modern kitchen from the stove to the very pots and pans that we use stem from the same basic principle that once upon a time, and some say that was Africa, 1,400,000 BC. Others say Asia and 500,000 BC. But at some point, we creatures discovered fire and we discovered too that fire made food taste good. And really, that's where the concept of cooking was born. Before that, we were eating raw. We were eating berries and <laughs> chunk of bison or whatever it was. We would just put it in our mouth and chew. And fire changes things and makes, makes some foods more palatable. And then, of course, I think what separates us from other creatures on this planet, too, is that we learned how to combine foods, too, to create this concept of cooking. Right. So yeah, there are a million ways to talk about food and fire as we develop techniques to use fire to transform basically animals and vegetables into food. We also develop technologies to contain and harness heat from fire. And we create furnaces that allowed us to work metal into pots and pans. We created kilns that fire glass and ceramics that created our tableware. And at this point, we've actually even fashioned appliances that bring eminently controllable and even fireless heat into our homes to cook and to stay warm and to provide light. The fact that we use fire as this basic thing, but now we have non-fire fire, fire. <laughs> it's amazing when you think about it. It really is. Like you said, we've harnessed this elemental component and we've been able to dissect it mm -hmm. into other components where it's become cleaner and easier to use. Because, mm -hmm. you know, honestly, building a fire and cleaning all the creosote off of those vessels that we have created really could become cumbersome. So yeah. it is pretty fascinating how we've been able to move from fire into these other non-fire fire types yeah. of cooking so I was reading a book called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. And there were two thoughts that I thought were particularly interesting by two cultural anthropologists. One was Claude Levi Strauss, who I thought was the guy who invented Levi's, but he's not. He's a French <laughs> cultural anthropologist. I would have assumed the same thing, though. <laughs> right. right. But his concept is that cooking establishes this difference between animals and people. Mm -hmm. And it marked this transition from nature to culture, which mm -hmm. is an interesting concept. We've talked about an article specifically that hopefully we'll talk about in another episode, how cooking created a culture within a specific group. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think about how fire has created culture Edmund Leish, who is another cultural anthropologist, says something a little bit different. He says people don't need to cook their food. And that's a true statement. We don't mm -hmm. need that's to cook absolutely our food. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, but we do so for these symbolic reasons, because it shows that we're men and not beasts. Oh. So we have raised ourselves above the beasts that right. we have dominion over. So right. I, I thought that those two things were pretty interesting to think about when we're talking about fire and campfires. But to answer your question, we went 
probably the long way around. But to answer your question, when I think about campfire, I think about foods that you cook on sticks. That's probably the first way that things were roasted on campfires. There's something so I don't know, satisfying about foraging for that perfect green stick. I mean, that was my favorite part when we went camping. We would have to go out and find the stick that we were going to use for the remainder of the the weekend that wouldn't burn up. So it had to be green. It had to be the Mm -hmm. perfect green. It needed to be straight because it's important to not get in the way of anybody else. And it had to be long enough and sturdy Mm -hmm. enough. I don't know. I just... I absolutely loved hunting for that perfect stick. And it really did turn into this kind of treasure hunt for me. And the thing that I thought was particularly interesting, thinking back on it, about how even in that focus for that perfect stick, that you were able to see and notice the things that you may have missed if you were just walking in the woods, the edible fruits in the forest that were around you or the pine cones or the colors, just the different colors of green in the forest. Mm. And obviously, we usually camped in the forest. So that's my recollection. <laughs> <laughs> my my recollection is a little bit more American Southwest with that Southern California, Arizona. And it's funny because clearly not forest, but I do have that same visceral memory of searching out the right stick, even though that would have been very difficult to find in the desert. But there was something that transcended geography and that I think most of us have some kind of campfire memory or story that actually there are probably more commonalities than there are divergences. In regards to the stick, I also feel like there was a little bit of a camping culture. My family always camped at a campground. We didn't do a whole lot of off-grid type stuff. I seem to remember a little bit of a campground culture that if you did have that perfect campfire stick, that you left it behind for somebody else. Yes. That you didn't burn it up. You didn't throw it away. You didn't take it with you. And that you might even, and well, I also remember a fair amount of cooking on coat hangers, on wire coat hangers, which <laughs> which people probably cringe at right now. Yeah. <laughs> like the thought of it but we would always bring we would always throw a couple in the car for that very purpose but yeah if you were that yeah if you had something if you had found something that you left it behind for the next person even though you had no idea who that was you know what that's so interesting I I hadn't thought about that but that's absolutely true we used to do the same thing we'd leave it leaned up against a tree by the fire pit or across the fire pit as almost as an offering I guess yes you felt like you were part of a community yeah so and and maybe I'm a little weird and I think we all know I am and that's I'm totally good with that but also when I'm in front of a campfire when I'm having those experiences I do like to think of a long line of people that came before me we're all represent an unbroken chain of ancestry at some point in our lives a couple was able to get together and have a child because this is still a very elemental practice at one point it would have been like that's how they lived graduating to that this is a choice that you make and you bring along a whole bunch of care with you or not right but i do love this idea that we're all part of an uninterrupted chain of humans mm. living our lives out underneath the heavens out in the open cooking something that will sustain our bodies and our family and our community it's just 
I know I'm waxing really poetic about all this, but it's just a really beautiful thing to me. I think that talking about fire brings out that poetic waxing. Think about sitting around a fire and for a, a long period of time, people can just sit around that fire and not say a word, just staring into the fire Mm-hmm. wondering it just it's one of those things that is so <sighs> calming isn't the right word but but it, it is you like you yeah. melt into it yes you, it's a whole as the kids would say it's a whole mood <laughs> oh, fire. it's a whole mood okay it's I have to remember mood. that one I'm definitely I'm feeling my middle agedness a lot <laughs> more than I used to yeah And I mean, we have candles meant to smell like campfires. It's clearly a very special, sacred thing. As a modern camper, as I said, my my family, when I was much younger, I I remember doing a lot of camping. I also camped a lot with the Girl Scouts. But as a modern camper, I've always had access to tools that made cooking outside pretty similar, actually, to how my family would cook and eat at home. I have a really great photo of me that I'm going to have to dig out about age five Sitting at a picnic bench, I actually remember this too. And I'm eating Chef Boyardee out of a big pot. <laughs> Chef Boyardee <laughs> ravioli. Neither of my parents were really into like rustic camping. And so my primary memory is that a lot of our meals were actually prepared over our very trusty, very beloved Coleman's camping stove. It was fueled by propane. And that smell, I know I'm getting away from the campfire side of things, but that smell of propane takes me like way back to being a kid yeah. and running around and outside. So it wasn't really until I was starting to be older and I was a Girl Scout. That's when I started really exploring the idea of food cooked directly over fire. And obviously it started with s'mores when we're going to, I know we're going to touch, we have to touch base about Absolutely. s'mores because how can you live without s'mores in your life? That indelible treat of roasted marshmallows combined with chocolate and graham crackers. But, you know, that these efforts actually eventually graduated to foil packets, which some called hobo packets. Yep. And those are assembled with all manner of ingredients and then cooked on a grate over open campfire flames or in the coals. What's really cool about them, though, is the, the things you put inside the foil packets. So the rest of my stories are a little bit more about the ingredients of hobo packets. But you know me, I tried to dig up a little bit of the history of these things because I wanted to know. So hobo packets, virtually synonymous with scouting in America and mostly boy scouting. I found so many anecdotal stories about the classic Boy Scout recipe of hobo packets that is a combination of ground beef, potatoes, carrots, Maybe cabbage. I actually found a couple of references to cabbage, which kind of surprised me. But hey, I imagine it would be delicious. And then ketchup, which ultimately forms like a sauce. And the romantic history of the hobo packet, if you will, is that homeless folks during the Great Depression, that was 1929 to 1933, would scrounge meals from any source possible using vegetable peelings, odd cuts of meat, or vegetables and fruits that could be stolen, bartered, or foraged, and then all that was cooked together. Oral histories about food and cooking by homeless folks are much more about mulligan or community stews, actually, than these individualized tin or aluminum foil packets. So I'm really inclined to believe that foil cooking is actually mostly a post-World War II invention 
because that's when a vast range of aluminum products really made their way into grocery stores. And that's like the 1950s and 1960s in the United States, for sure. A little bit more about Mulligan stews, because you know me and my rabbit trails. I'm just super excited about all the stuff I learned. So the process of making a Mulligan stew was described in the Sunday Oregonian newspaper on January 21st, 1900. So way before American Depression as a collaborative effort in scrounging performed by a small group of people. One builds a fire, rustles a can, another procures meat, maybe stealing a chicken, another finds vegetables, probably potatoes and onions because those kind of store and keep really well, another finds bread, and so on. And it's called a mulligan because it's considered a bastardized version of an Irish stew. So I'm, I'm going to bring it on back to foil cooking and my scouting cooking experiences. So I have to confess a little bit that I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention. I wasn't quite the foodie then that I am now. So as to how this worked. So I was really grateful to have access to a copy of Laura Bashar's The Camp and Cabin Cookbook for some pointers about the importance of using both high water and low water foods to balance out how the food is simultaneously roasted and steamed and the importance of rotating foil packets for even heat distribution. The really exciting news that I have to share with everybody is that in honor of this, our 25th episode of As We Eat, yay! yay! We are giving away a copy of Laura Bashar's The Camp and Cabin Cookbook. So if you go over to our Instagram page, remember that's As We Eat on Instagram, you will find details on how to win this 25th episode special copy of this book we're really excited thank you laura so much for supporting as we eat and helping us be better camp and cabin cookers <laughs> really do appreciate it <laughs> okay so traditional scouting recipes for foil packets really focus on ease and the real beauty of these foil packets are that there are a multitude of flavor and ingredient combinations to try so here are some of them of the favorite ones that I've picked up over time. Some of them are more modern, some of them more traditional, but all delicious. Chicken, eggplant, tomato, lemon, and garlic all together, Ooh. which again, you've got your high water, your low water kind of vegetable blend, sliced bell peppers, onions, carrots, and corn with mesquite spices for a vegetarian dish, mm. right? Minute steaks with mustard mushrooms, and finely sliced leeks, sliced sausage, potatoes, onion, and sauerkraut for kind of a German flair. We'll put a little trout filet, maybe freshly caught trout if you're that good. I've never ever been that good at catching anything except like little barracudas off the coast of California. <laughs> Not, this one I thought was really funny because there's nothing like fresh about it at all, but a ham slice with pineapple and canned sweet potatoes which would be tasty, but not really that super fresh yeah. outdoor flavor. I found a recipe on a Boy Scout recipe site for drumsticks, Indiana, which involves mixing hamburger with cornflakes, egg, onion, spices. You form that around a stick and then you cook that. And then this one, this is especially for you. Tuna burgers <laughs> made from canned tuna, sandwich spread. And relish, and then with a slice of tomato, and no, you pick that you. up and put it on a hamburger bun. No, you're a hard no. pass on that one. Hard pass on that one. <laughs> and I did like this little snippet I found for, that I found on our beloved food timeline. It's from the Fanny Farmer Cookbook in 1965. 
And she wrote, foil cooking is successful for many foods. Wrap in aluminum foil, cook on the grill. Potatoes take an hour, corn 15 minutes. Frozen vegetables with a dab of butter and a sprinkling of salt, about 30 minutes. Dip whole fish in salad oil. Sprinkle with salt and pepper and roll in cornmeal. Sprinkle fish fillets and sliced fish with salt and pepper, dot with butter. Cook about 10 minutes on each side, served wrapped in the foil. Thank you, Fanny Farmer. Thank you, Fanny. There are some interesting sweet versions. I don't remember ever not eating s'mores for dessert, but these were pretty intriguing things that I think I might have to give a try. Banana with miniature marshmallows and chocolate chips, a cord and peeled apple filled with crushed pineapple and raisins and coated in cinnamon sugar. Oh, now we did do the apples, but it had brown sugar and raisins and nuts on them. Mm. But that sounds tasty too. Mm-hmm. And then this one also sounds really good. Peach halves, marshmallows, and cinnamon. Oh, yum. Yeah. But before we talk more about dessert, my personal all-time favorite campfire food was the foil-wrapped baked potato. And this is a story of me coming into my own with campfire foods as well. So the scouting community that I participated in Southern California throughout high school had an annual gathering called GAM or Gathering of All Mariners. And it was a weekend-long event where several troops throughout our region would converge, large group camping experience, We had competitions during the day, things like Navy time, bell time and watches, semaphore, canoeing and rowing, sailing, orienteering, knots. I mean, it was fantastic fun. I loved GAM and I was thrilled to actually find out that they still do it. Oh, that's cool. Um, It's super. I'm so I'm actually really excited that that this is still a tradition for the Southern California troops. And each troop had its own sovereign ship. And you had to request permission to come aboard in order to visit another group's campsite. So the idea was that we were all these individualized units as if we were ships that were all like docked together. Yeah. And after supper, every night, we'd gather at a big communal campfire for songs, stories, general merriment, and of course, s'mores. But we would eat with our troops, the main meal. Every night, I think we would do a baked potato, a foil jacket, put it in the fire and I would always save my baked potato and tuck it into my hoodie pocket, walk (laughs) over to the big campfire, and then it would be like a hand warmer. And then at some point, I'd get hungry, (laughs) peel it and eat it as a snack. I swear that those baked potatoes never tasted so good. I have yet to eat a baked potato since then that is quite as fine as that potato. It was always just a beautiful kind of traditional thing. We've talked a bit about the memory of foods and how not only the food itself, but the experience that we were having around that food, how that developed that memory and developed the flavor almost of that food. Because you had what was happening. And obviously, we're so excited about GAM. That was obvious by your explanation (laughs) of it. So you had this really lovely experience with all of these girls in this community. And that adds to the flavor of that dish that you were experiencing. I love that story. And I was popular, at at least in the scouting community. And at least at GAM, I I really loved the event. And so I went into it with a lot of energy and, and excitement and enthusiasm and Felt like I had a lot of friends that I would visit. Actually, that was something I did during dinner. I'd eat at our camp and then I'd go from camp to camp and sample things. It just was what it was. Very unique, special time. And 
wouldn't have been as fantastic and fabulous of a memory if we didn't have that communal campfire. So good times. But the s'more, man, that that tops them all, right? It does. You know, and speaking of s'mores and the fact that one of my favorite foods is foods on sticks when we have a campfire. My all-time favorite food on a stick is a roasted marshmallow. Mm. We've talked so much about how the campfire creates this community and this pulling together. But one of the things about roasted marshmallows is that roasting a marshmallow is a super personal event. You usually don't roast a marshmallow for somebody else. That's so true. That is super true. Right? It's a cooking method that's taken on by whoever's going to eat it generally. And I have a little fun food fact. I'll share a little bit later about that. But you don't roast a marshmallow for somebody else. You roast it for yourself. And then I got to thinking about where did this puff fluff of sugar come from? How did this thing come to be? Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a marshmallow plant. So is the marshmallow plant involved in the marshmallow itself? So I had to go on a little bit of a marshmallow excursion to figure out where marshmallows come from. (laughs) And... Indeed. Can I just say how actually awesome it is that we have the opportunity to have these marshmallow excursions and forays into things that we think we know, but we realize we don't actually know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that is one thing about the internet and information sharing that I absolutely love, that I find really fabulous. It's probably the only thing. Not really. In the community that gathers yes. around the yes. topics that we all love. Exactly. <laughs> like our as we eat community. Yes. We love you. We do love you. So the marshmallow is yes. a plant. It's a marsh plant. It lives in the marsh. So that's why it's called marsh. It's a mallow, which is a group of plants. So that's where the name came from, marshmallow. Okay. But that's not what we eat. Well, yes and no. Marshmallow, the thing that's really interesting about so many of the things that we've talked about and so many ingredients that we talked about is that the plant itself was used for medicinal purposes as well as for food purposes. Originally, the sap from the marshmallow was mixed with egg whites and sugar. And throughout the ages, it's been used for medicinal purposes as well as a confection. So according to E. Scoose in his book, Scoose's Complete Confectioner, quote, marshmallows or guimauve, French, are a form <laughs> of sweet meat for which the confectioner is indebted to the pharmacist. And so mm. apparently the marshmallow root Gum, egg whites, and sugar were used as this pectoral remedy because marshmallow, the plant, actually has mm-hmm. these anti-inflammatory purposes. Oh, and as, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. And as far back as 2000 BC, the Egyptians combined marshmallow root with honey and nuts, creating this sweet treat. And like so many of the luxury foods that we've talked about in some of our past episodes, they were reserved for the rich and famous, in this Mm -hmm. case, gods and the pharaohs. The modern marshmallow actually appeared in France in 1850. 
they weren't mass market confections that we know today. They were still being mixed with the marshmallow root. They were super labor intensive. They had to be molded individually. So they were done in confectionaries and small retail locations. But by the 1900s, they were available as penny candy in these little tins. And it was because of this invention called the starch mogul system. And essentially, it's this machine that lays out this huge layer of cornstarch. It's super thick. And then they embed this mold into it to create the wells that make the marshmallow. And then the marshmallow fluff is dropped into the molds. And it was still pretty time consuming. Cornstarch molding is something that I believe we're going to be talking about in October when we talk about our favorite Halloween candies. It's true. Yeah. Something I happen to know about the future. I love time travel. Isn't that fantastic? It is. It is. So it was around this time, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, that marshmallow roasts actually became popular. And I found this newspaper article dated August 8th, 1892, in the World Chicago Daily Tribune. And it was syndicated across some other newspapers as well. The title of the article is Marshmallow Roasts, a New Fad Which Affords Amusement and Candy. And this article specifically explains that this new fad is charming and the newest thing in summer resort diversions. Oh my goodness. Right. And it goes on to give directions on how to set up the marshmallow roast. And one of the things that I found super endearing was the fact that they defined the process by giving the amount of marshmallows needed, the fact that you needed to invite some friends, and (laughs) quote, that is all the preparation that's required. So it was a super simple way to entertain and to have this confection. Yeah. And except for the fact that You need to bring your kindling and find a spot away from the crowds, quote, unfamiliar with so refined a species of entertainment. So I'm going to interrupt you super quick because I'm really struck by this rustic novel thing. Yes. This this way of being in communities, having a party, having a celebration, because how many times have we talked about these elaborate tables with the two cakes and the 15 types of biscuits and the fruit parfait. This is really a shift away from that white table, very elaborate, very formal social table into something that I can imagine like you can imagine the people being like shocked and surprised and delighted about this break from tradition. Exactly. This no longer stuffy, but being outside and having the experience of being around a fire. Yeah. And it being a little wild. Yeah. 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 I love that. And and that and it is all the preparation required. To your point, oh, it wasn't right? elaborate. You just needed a pound or two of marshmallows. You needed to invite six to twelve friends. You did need to bring some kindling and you did need to find this place away from the crowds. Yes. Yes. And then it goes on to explain how you affix the marshmallow onto the skewer. It talks a little bit about the flames of the fire, but it says it's even better if you wait until the fires died down to the embers. And then you dexterously turn the marshmallows, which requires some skill because Mm -hmm. they are. And this I found really interesting because it says they were highly inflammable, which thinking they meant (laughs) flammable. You get a little typo there. And will take fire if not prudently handled. (laughs) 
as as absolutely every kid has rediscovered every single time that you make a s'more. Yes. And then it goes on to say, when done, they are morsels of the god, something I'm pretty sure the pharaohs would have agreed with. Mm -hmm. Resembling in flavor the exquisite meringue with a delicious nutty and crusty outside. And then there are a wow. lot more flowery adjectives that are used in this article related to the final roasted marshmallow. But it was slightly salacious at the close of the article, indicating that marshmallow roasts are an excellent medium for flirtation. Mm. Mutual regard between a young lady and gentleman being appropriately exhibited by nibbling the marshmallows off of each other's stick. Accordingly, <laughs> the idea is sure to grow in favor. And that is the one time when you must pay specific attention to your roasting of the marshmallow oh, if you're absolutely. going to be flirting with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because so back to the this idea of the individualized, the super individualized cooking of a marshmallow, where because everyone has substantially different preferences. Personally, I like mine set on fire for three seconds or less. Like you catch it and then you immediately put it out. I mean, yeah. I know, I know the goal is that fine golden crust. Yeah. Okay, so this is super funny. I did not know that about you. That is my particular way of roasting a marshmallow. I <laughs> love to set it me. on fire. No, I love <laughs> to set it on fire. And then I blow it out. And then I, I literally pull that off. I eat that part. Yes. And then I set it on fire again. I pull that part off. Oh, yes. my God. Lay. This is incredible. <laughs> yes. Yes. The layers of a mark. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I really didn't know that about marshmallow being medicinal. Yeah. Yep. So I'm you really can thank the pharmacist for our marshmallows. And ultimately... Pharmacist. And S'mores. Yeah. Like so many of the topics and foods that we've covered, you can't pin down the exact date no. or person that invented the s'more. Sandwich cookies filled with jam and, and creams were popular in the Victorian cookbooks. Um, and 20th century American cookbooks contained recipes for chocolate sandwiches and marshmallow sandwiches. And then there were moon pies scooter mm -hmm. pies, Malamars, mm -hmm. that were being produced by American food companies. But it wasn't until Tramping and Trailing with the Girl Scouts, a 1927 cookbook by the Girl Scouts of America, that the first recorded recipe for the s'more appeared. And the recipe called for eight dicks to roast the marshmallows, <laughs> 16 graham crackers, eight bars of plain chocolate, and 16 marshmallows. And it directed the roasting of two marshmallows over the coals and then placing them inside a graham cracker and chocolate bar sandwich. Mm. Now, we, we had talked a little bit earlier about the size of marshmallows, which I found really interesting because here they're saying that you roast two marshmallows and put them on there. Our marshmallows today are ginormous. If you put yeah. two marshmallows on there, you yeah. give yourself <laughs> yeah, type two trouble. diabetes for one. <laughs> right. But yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. In 1927, they were prescribing two marshmallows per s'more. <laughs> And I feel like media then, because I do know at a certain point, media was of like two marshmallows on a stick over the fire. Like I remember yes. I, that image that really visual, does come yes. to mind. The other thing that I found really interesting is that they called for the eight bars of plain chocolate Hershey's yeah. 
or some other high quality chocolate. I thought it was so interesting that that Hershey's was considered a very high quality chocolate at the That's time. So fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And the name likely came from the last line of the instructions, which says, though it tastes like some more, one really is enough. <laughs> Said no camper ever. <laughs> Who's ever satisfied with one s'more? Man, this is bringing so many just delicious, happy memories. Those are good times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad that it's something that we still do, even though we have all of our fancy hotels and cruise ships and things that people still people do still camp yeah me too i love camping yeah i know we usually say we're gonna go eat something we do i don't have anything to eat we do have a fire pit here so i think that maybe tonight we're gonna have to roast up some marshmallows and make some s'mores. and i'm gonna burn my marshmallow first please will you please burn a marshmallow for me can i I will can i get a marshmallow tribute absolutely Thank you. Yeah. I just don't have the means to really do it and mint someone on <laughs> someone else's home. So I probably shouldn't set probably things should. on fire. No, it's probably you not know, a wise choice. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Maybe I'll sneak out in the middle of the night and figure it out. So before we set things on fire, what can our community expect to hear for the next episode? Oh, we are returning to a favorite of not only yours and mine, but our community in general. We've actually gotten a lot of requests mm-hmm. for what's in your pantry. So I'm really excited to explore my topic, as I'm sure you are, about yours. I am. I'm going to leave you in suspense. You'll yes. have to tune in to find out what we're going to talk about. But I can guarantee you, you have this in your refrigerator whether you like it or not, you have it. Now, I'm not so sure my topic is in your pantry, but after you listen to our next episode, you might want to have it in your pantry all the time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. See you soon. See you soon. And don't forget to go oh. over to Instagram as we eat, Facebook as we eat, and find out how to enter to win The Campfire and Cabin Cookbook by Laura Bashar. And thank you again, Laura. Yes. For helping us with this. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.